Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. In 1783, the United States and Great Britain signed the Treaty of Paris, which confirmed American independence. And as part of those treaty negotiations, American and British diplomats had to determine the new nation's borders. They used maps like John Mitchell's 1755 work, A Map of the British and French Dominions in North America, to figure out what separated the United States from what remained of British America in Canada. And by the way, you can see a digital copy of the Mitchell map in the library's collections. Check the show notes for the link. Now, in our own time, the U.S. border with Mexico gets all the attention. But in the 18th century, it was the northern border with Canada that mattered the most. But even though diplomats drew a line dividing a republican nation from a monarchical one, lines on paper mattered little to people on the ground in areas like Detroit or Montreal where Americans, Canadians, and Native peoples had an incentive to move goods and people freely across the border. They were, as today's guest calls them, citizens of convenience, people who frequently shifted their identity from American citizen to British subject and back, depending on local circumstances and their own self-interest. Dr. Lawrence B.A. Hatter joins me to discuss the politics of the northern border, taking us on a journey from the diplomatic halls of Paris and London to the trading grounds of Detroit, Ontario, and Quebec in the aftermath of the American Revolution. Hatter is the author of Citizens of Convenience, The Imperial Origins of American Nationhood on the U.S.-Canadian Border, published by the University of Virginia Press in 2017. He is an associate professor of history at Washington State University and a former research fellow at the Washington Library. Now, before we get started, a reminder that in addition to our podcast, we have a goodly number of digital book talks waiting for you at www.mountvernon.org slash gwdigitaltalks. There, you'll find all of the library's past live streams and a schedule of our upcoming events. Be sure to check them out. And with that, let's become citizens of convenience on the U.S.-Canadian border with Lawrence B.A. Hatter. All right. Any last questions or thoughts or concerns? No, I don't think so. Easy enough. Yeah. Let's do this, man. <laughs> I was kind of wondering when the old Sir Larry was going to come out, and there it was right there. I guess we should talk about my, what I wrote years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but still out in hardback for people to acquire and teach in their own classes. Can can we get Oprah on endorse this? Uh... I don't see why not. You get that magical sticker on there, you're in good shape. Well, speaking of your book, I couldn't help but think about uh, my childhood, actually, because I grew up in southwestern Ohio. And from where I grew up, it was about maybe a seven-hour drive to Toronto if you were really moving. And so, you know, I grew up at a border state. Of course, most of the border was Lake Erie, um, but you always knew Canada was up there. And of course, if you looked at a map, you know, you saw the border there running through Lake Erie and then turning up uh, northward to divide Michigan from Canada and whatnot. And, you know, the funny thing about growing up there was that you know, even though we were so close, you know, it was very clear that we were two distinct peoples, despite the fact that, you know, we shared a common language and, and common culture in a lot of ways. And certainly in many cases, common religion. And as I was saying, you, know, you look at a map, it's very clear that the border is there. And when you try to cross the border, it's very clear that you're moving from one sovereign place to another. It was much more complicated in 1783. It was, wasn't as clear or as fixed as we might describe it today in modern terms of a border. Can you give us a sense of what the northern border of the United States and the southern border of Canada looked like in the aftermath of the American Revolution? And I thought we might spend some time in 1783 
looking at the state of play and the kind of parties involved and, and the actors that are in your story? Well, it was both more complicated and, and simpler in the sense that uh, you could cross this thing with no hindrance whatsoever, which is what makes it complicated politically in terms of, you know, what did the border mean? Where was it located and so on? So the Treaty of Paris does draw a boundary. And it is, in essence, at least, uh, you know, east of the Mississippi, in essence, it's the boundary that we have today with Canada, most of which is water-based, right, either through rivers or through the Great Lakes. I remember visiting Detroit, where a lot of the research for this book began, and standing basically on the Detroit River and looking across. And, you know, the board, the, the river is an obvious boundary for a human being um, today, but that wasn't the case in the 18th century. Rivers are highways, or rivers connect, they approximate, um, to use a term that, that comes up actually during the uh, discussions of the Treaty of Ghent. Rivers tend to approximate, mountains divide. So there's an argument later about using topography to try to divide uh, the US from Canada. Um, But anyway, what happens? Uh, Negotiators in Paris agree to this line, which is pretty generous in terms of the war in the West is pretty indecisive at the end. um, Really the last major uh, battle is the Battle of Bulix in Kentucky, which is between mostly between indigenous people, the uh, Haudenosaunee Confederacy in particular, and uh, Kentucky settlers, Daniel Boone loses one of his sons at the Battle of Lulix. Um, but anyway, it's indecisive. We know earlier on that George Rogers Clark, uh, whose statue is being removed from Charlottesville, right? Isn't this one of the recommendations from the university? I read that the other day. That's correct. Mm-hmm. I remember, you know, looking at the statue when you're at uh, Magic Mushroom, was it? Mellow no, Mushroom. Not Magic. No, you have to go to Oregon for that now. Um <laughs> But anyway, George Rogers Clark, remember that he captured Vincent. Anyway, the, the war in the West is really, um, you know, the outcome is uncertain. There's no clear victor. But the British government has decided uh, the Earl of Shelburne is the prime minister at the time. Um, and he thinks that a sort of a generous peace offering to the United States would be a way to, in some ways, sort of reconstruct uh, the relationship between Britain and its former colonies on a different footing, politically independent, but maybe sort of economically still basically the same, right? There's a discussion of this term federal union, uh, which I think is quite interesting because, uh, you know, today we would say, well, the federal union is the United States, right? But uh, the term in 1783 was used to describe some kind of loose association between the United States and Great Britain. Uh, the meaning was really ambiguous in the 18th century, what federal union exactly meant. So anyway, you've got this, uh, so basically what's described as the Ohio country, so everything west of the Appalachians to the Mississippi, with the exception of Spanish claims along the Gulf Coast and Florida, uh, is included in the territory of the United States with the expectation that Britain is going to continue to trade with this region pretty much as it had done before. And I talk about that in the first chapter, that really after the recognition of political independence in these negotiations in Paris, at the moment we're still in Paris, we will eventually get to what's going on on the ground. Um, but the negotiations in Paris, it felt like, you know, once the political business was done, that was the hard bit, right? Accepting independence was the hard bit. And George III had done that by the preliminary articles, which were agreed in November of 1782. And then everybody was coming back in the spring, 1783, to talk about what happens next. And this was going to be the happy bit, they thought, right? Well, we'll, you know, we'll do 
the deal on trade and things like that. And, you know, we have so much mutual interest here that this shouldn't be a problem. Um, but that ends up not to be the case. And this is, you know, we like to talk about contingency in history. And this is one of those sort of contingent moments where the negotiations don't work out. Uh, and this is largely to do with British domestic politics. Uh, the Earl of Shelburne, who was prime minister, loses, basically, he loses uh, control over uh, parliament. Um, and you have uh, his replacement eventually with William Pitt who adopts a more, I guess you could say, a more protectionist approach to the imperial economy. He adopts the ideas of Lord Sheffield, who wrote a pamphlet in 1783, which talked about the relationship between, the future relationship between Britain and the United States. And he advocated basically no trade deal. Um, so actually, this is kind of interesting at the moment, right? Because we've got, uh, you could describe the American Revolution as the first Brexit, mm -hmm. if you like. And now we have a new Brexit, so anyway, going back to 1783, Pitt embraces the, these ideas that Britain doesn't need to do a trade deal with the United States. It is so uh, economically powerful that British markets, British capital are going to find their way into America even without a deal. We don't need to do a deal. Um, and a lot of this is also tied to the maritime carrying trade. So, you know, everything's being taken by ship in the 18th century. And there's this concern um, that Britain must protect its merchant marine and that the merchant marine supplies sailors to the Royal Navy. Uh, and if we allow the Americans to take too much of the carrying trade, we're undermining, you know, the bastion of the, or the bulwark, I should say, of British liberty, which is the Royal Navy, which is all rather technical. But the point here really is this idea of contingency, right? That these political changes within Great Britain mean that there's no deal done, that final peace treaty between United States and Great Britain uh, is the same as the preliminary treaty of 1782. So it really doesn't, it decides the basics, right? There's mm -hmm. going to be political independence. This is where the border's going to be. These are the mechanisms for, you know, ending the war in terms of evacuations and things like that, including the Western Post, which we're going to come back to later. So the Western Post are places like Niagara, Detroit, Michilimackinac are the three probably most important. Uh, Britain holds those at the end of the war, um, even though they're on American soil. Um, and it agrees in the Treaty of Paris to return those. Uh, that's not going to happen. So there's the spoiler. Um, so the treaty agrees these basics, but it doesn't do anything else. And that's where the ambiguity is for the border. So it doesn't agree anything else in terms of the commercial relationship. Uh, it doesn't decide things like uh, nationality or citizenship of people who are in the West, uh, outside of the States, right? Because citizenship is something that within the United States at this time that is determined by the States. Um, so it leaves all these things undecided. So what happens is nothing really changes on the ground for the people involved. They go about their normal business. They're worried because there's, in, you know, they don't know exactly what's going to happen in the future. But things basically stay the same. Um, and who are these people who are on the ground? Why do we care? I mean, why are people really moving between these two places? Well, the book largely focuses on the perspective of uh, traders and merchants involved in Montreal fur trade. Mm -hmm. Obviously, no, Montreal is in uh, the province of Quebec. Basically, it's the furthest inland port that's navigable by ocean-going vessels. So ships can come in from the Atlantic and go down the St. Lawrence to Montreal, and they have to stop uh, because there is a series of rapids on the St. Lawrence River, the Lachine Rapids, uh, which prevent ocean-going vessels. So this is kind of an entrepot between the Atlantic world and the early American West, the Great Lakes, the Ohio countries. Eventually, the Missouri River, too, will be sort of tied into this uh, river network. And, you know, the fur trade is something that we don't tend to think about so much in the 18th century. It's one of those things you think of it as being, you know, sort of a 17th century French-Canadian thing. 
Uh, but it does remain sort of economically important. It's not like, you know, the sugar colonies in the Caribbean or something like that. But it remains economically important in Canada and it remains politically important to the British Empire because uh, trade and diplomacy are intertwined in um, indigenous diplomatic culture. So Canada relies on, or the British Empire, Canada, rely on alliances with various indigenous peoples throughout the West. This has been very important during uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, it will remain important up to and including the War of 1812. Um, so. The fur trade was one of the ways that you sort of cemented alliance through mm -hmm. these economic exchange, but then also through sort of family networks that for traders to access, you know, indigenous marketplaces, if you want to use the term, um, this often involved both real and fictive kinship between traders and, you know, native peoples. So it wasn't, you know, it's not purely a transactional thing at all. Uh, it operates on various levels. Uh, so anyway, there's uh, by uh, in 1783, there's an extensive trading network centered on Montreal, but it has a number of important um, sort of uh, regional trading centers in places like the places I just mentioned, the, the Western Coast, Niagara, Detroit is probably the most important in the Southwest. So we're talking about the South. We talk about the Southwest trade. We're talking about uh, Ohio, um, Illinois, and uh, St. Louis and the Missouri River. If we talk about the Northwest trade, we're really talking about um, sort of more so Michelin-Mackinac, what is now sort of present day uh, Thunder Bay and up into uh, you know, Manitoba and places like that eventually. Um, so my book mostly focuses on the Southwest trade, um, but the Northwest trade relies on these navigation networks too. Um, and this will eventually connect to Oregon, right? So by the end of the book, I'm talking about Astoria and Oregon. And places like that so it's an expanding trade but anyway this involves the movement of thousands of people we think of the fur trade you know you might think of these sort of like mountain men these you know dudes going out with their playoff beards which you can't see at the moment but i was i grew a playoff beard for the election so when the result finally comes out i can finally get rid of this horrible thing um but anyway so you, you look like you belong right at home in the uh, northwestern trade at the moment I, you know, I could do, and, and one of my, I have a family in, in British Columbia uh, who do trapping, um, and I do actually have a, a muskrat hat. I should have put that on as well. You've missed a real opportunity to uh, enhance so. the visual appeal of the audio podcast. Mm. Exactly. In fact, we should have told everyone, uh, forget I said that I'm wearing the hat. Um, <laughs> It's definitely not downstairs. Well, as you um, were saying, you know, there there are thousands of people operating in this space. There are hundreds of thousands of pounds, mm -hmm. uh, British pounds at stake in this trade. And what one of the fascinating things I found in your book or reading your book was this group called the Canada Merchants, who emerged as a very powerful, forceful lobbying group that is trying to influence policy on both sides of a border that doesn't really exist yet, uh, at least in terms of when you start your story. Who are these Canada merchants and, and what are their objectives? Well, it's possible. It's not impossible that some of the listeners may have heard of some of these people. Um, you'd certainly, if, if we have Canadian listeners, they're certainly going to be more uh, familiar. Um, but these are largely merchants who are from the British periphery. So a lot of them are from Scotland, also Northern Ireland. There are some Englishmen too, and some Irishmen, and 
there's probably even some Welsh people in there if you looked hard enough. But predominantly they are uh, uh, Scottish merchants. A lot of them actually come from the Inverness area, mm -hmm. um, in the Highlands. But some are names. So James McGill is uh, uh, one of the most important merchants in Montreal. He's the founder of McGill University, if anyone's familiar with that. His partner uh, was Isaac Todd. He was Irish. Um, then it also involves people like uh, uh, William McGillivray, um, who's involved in the Northwest Company, which eventually merges with the Hudson's Bay Company, which I'm sure many people have heard of still exists today. In fact, uh, not as a fur trading company, but as a department store. So if you go to Canada, uh, you can visit the Bay Company. And in fact, they still sell some of their uh, iconic blankets that were sort of a major uh, commodity within the fur trade. Um, they're very expensive, however. I, Wherever I go there, I'm tempted to buy one, but then I remember I have children who will destroy this $400 blanket, and I, I don't feel like I can do that yet. <laughs> um, but anyway, they are mostly, they came to Montreal after the fall of New France. Um, so we know that the British Empire defeats the French in North America during the Seven Years' War. So Quebec is ceded to the British Empire by an earlier Treaty of Paris, because Paris is the place to go if you're having treaties. So a lot of these people came to Montreal and, and the North after the Treaty of Paris. Is there an opportunity here to, you know, exploit this new place in the British Empire? And in doing so, they marry into Canadian families, so French-Canadian families. Canadian is the term of choice for this uh, period rather than Quebecois. So they marry into these existing trading networks because we know the French have established expansive uh, trading networks for, you know, over, well over 100 years. So these are, you know, sort of, what I would call a sort of middling sort. They're sort of uh, locally prominent, but they're not, uh, you know, not George Washington figure in terms of post-war independence. In some ways, they're more of a George Washington figure colonial period, right? Mm -hmm. That they're uh, locally or provincially important, but they're not players on the international stage. Um, but they're also former sort of transatlantic networks. The center is really Montreal, but they have representatives in London. So Simon McTavish is one of the other main figures. He actually has a company in London and a company in Montreal, Simon McTavish is McGillivray's uncle, and that's the other thing about this is this is a very sort of like, you know, these families uh, sort of intermarry and, and so on and become this sort of like, you know, kinship network. Um, so they have representatives in London, and in fact, you know, talking about uh, the Treaty of Paris, the later one, 1783, uh, the merchants meet with Shelburne very shortly after they hear about the terms. And it's kind of amazing, I guess, maybe naively I'm thinking about this, but the sort of access that individuals could have to, you know, government in the 18th century is so much closer in, in some ways than we have today. I mean, I guess we already know that about, you know, people wandering into the White House and stuff like that under Jefferson. But um, anyway, they meet with Shelburne and they explain, you know, what have you done? This is, this is a terrible thing that you have done to us. You are cutting our throat here by severing the connection between Montreal and the West with this imaginary border. And Shelburne says, and this is a direct quote, be cool, my babies. He said that, um, that's definitely true. Um, <laughs> he, said, he said things like that um, because you have to remember that he imagined that there was basically gonna be no difference between Britons and Americans within North America in terms of trade. And he used the phrase, it was either him or his chief negotiator. They also met with his chief negotiator, Richard Oswald. Uh, basically it'd be no different going between British Empire and the United States as it would be leaving the county of Middlesex in England. So basically there'd be no difference at all. 
is what he was trying to suggest. But these people are influential, but they're, you know, they're one of a number of lobbies uh, that are operating in uh, the British metropole. So their concerns are always going to be weighed against the concerns about other lobbies, particularly the West India lobby, which is the most powerful in London. So I think in some ways the problem that they encounter is all the more curious because the fur trade and the Montreal fur trade is important, but it's not that important. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be, you know, that it's never going to be setting an imperial agenda. Um, but at the same time, it can't be completely ignored either. So that's why you end up with these sort of inconclusive settlements, in essence, particularly in 1783. What's the American perspective on this? Uh, because the United States is trying to assert its sovereignty. It's trying to assert its authority over the Trans-Appalachian West after 1783. Borders are one way to do that. Of course, borders mean nothing unless you can enforce that border. But what do they make of ideas like Shelburne's that there would be a kind of a continuing reciprocal trade taking place in this space in which it would be difficult to distinguish subject from citizen? Well, it sort of depends who you are. <clears throat> Somebody like John Jay was quite happy to sell out Westerners, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, he was willing under the Jay Gardoki Treaty, which it did happen, but one of the pro- one of the proposals was uh, to give up the of Mississippi, for example. Um, so not everybody was convinced that the West was uh, a place worth pursuing. I mean, Washington was. Uh, Washington was very concerned about establishing ties of, of comity and uh, mutual interest between the East and the West. Um, he's writing about this in 1784, I think, um, to the governor of Virginia. I mean, his great hope, as I'm sure you've probably talked about in other posts, Podcasters, you know, the Potomac can be this great, uh, you know, highway for uh, intersectional trade. Um, well, the, the answer is that there's very little. I mean, uh, prior to, the, you know, adopting and enacting the Constitution of 1788, there's really no centralized effort to control the border at all. Americans, I think, are largely unaware of what's going on on the border um, beyond reports from American army officers in the West and and treaty negotiators who always blame the Montreal fur trade for indigenous resistance to American imperialism. Um, And this obviously, this is partly a consequence because they recognize the power of trade in terms of its diplomatic value. Um, But it's actually harder to move between Virginia and Maryland than it is between Canada and the United States, which is bizarre, right? Because this is meant to be a union and this is meant to be an international border. Um, But the most important difficulty that the Americans do face, and this is something of which there's an awareness, is the fact that British troops remain on American soil. You know, there's an evacuation day in New York City, but um, British troops remain at these various forts, the Western Post that I've already talked about, the main ones again being Niagara, Detroit, and Michelamakanak. Michelamakanak is basically what we call Mackinac Island today. So the importance of all of these forts is uh, that they control these sort of critical choke points, um, network of rivers and lakes that form the border. You know, this is like sort of having turnpike stations or something, right, uh, on, on the interstate system. If you control those places, then you control the border. And British garrisons are still there after 1783, despite the Treaty of Paris. And the reason they're still there really is because they can be uh, that the United States is not going to 
is not powerful enough to force the British to remove their troops. The British garrisons remain because they want to maintain free movement across the border uh, and they want to maintain um, the confidence of their native allies. And if they remove the garrisons from the Western Post, then they would lose, it, it would severely undermine their alliance with native peoples. Um, the legal technicality is involves the non-payment of debts to British merchants from pre-war. So part of the Treaty of Paris had an, uh, had, had an agreement on uh, British merchants recovering debts from before independence. Um, basically, the federal court system or the state court system, I should say, couldn't really guarantee this. So the British government's position would be, you know, you've invalidated the treaty by doing that, so we're going to leave our troops there. You know, basically, the United States had very little... It had no surveillance or control over the border. Let's uh, zoom down a little bit. Zoom. I guess we're all on Zoom these days. I don't know if that's the best metaphor to use right now because we're all t tired of being in Zoom, but that's what we'll do. Let's look a, a little closer about the people who are moving between fictive border in this space. And your book is titled Citizens of Convenience. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean that uh, these people choose their nationality depending on their circumstances. Um, and they can switch between claiming to be either British or American, depending on where they are and what they're trying to do. And this is something, this is a circumstance that comes directly out of Jay Treaty of 1794. That's when it's negotiated, it was ratified in 1795. Uh, but there are two articles in there that do things that are important. Um, and I know talking about treaty sounds really boring. Um, but actually, treaties are really important, and they still are today. I mean, the, the interpreting this treaty is still something that's going on. There are federal court cases concerning indigenous rights of movement that still revolve around in interpreting the Jay Treaty. So even though, you know, you talk about treaties, and they sound so removed, right? Like, mm -hmm. This is some dusty old treaty that some old dudes negotiated in some room somewhere, and it um, but what the Jay Treaty did was ensure, finally, the withdrawal of those British garrisons, um, which sounds like a good thing for the United States. If you're a United States imperialist, you're like, oh, yeah, this is cool, right? Finally, we're getting rid of these guys who are an insult to our national sovereignty and who are, you know, controlling the border. And this will provide us with, you know, the opportunity to, you know, control our own borders. Um, well, it, it did do that. But at the same time, it also guaranteed certain rights to... Well, American citizens, British subjects, and native peoples, it guaranteed the right of free movement across the border, which doesn't sound so much like controlling borders, does it? Mm -hmm. um, this was guaranteed uh, that they could move freely across the border, back and forth. Uh, second thing that it did was it allowed British subjects who were resident in the United States at the time of the evacuation of the posts to decide whether or not they wanted to be British subjects or American citizens. Uh, so it meant that the populations that existed in places like Detroit, Detroit's the most populous outside of Montreal. I refer to this as the upper country, um, anything above the Lachine Rapids. And there's about 2,000 people who live in Detroit and the surrounding area, which makes it the largest town in the Northwest Territory at this time. It's bigger than Cincinnati, bigger than uh, Marietta. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it allows them to choose, um, but it doesn't establish any system for doing this. Uh, so it creates ambiguity. Um, so citizens of convenience are people who exploit these ambiguities, and they do this to avoid border surveillance by and large. And border surveillance is uh, mostly conducted by customs agents, um, as is the case today, and uh, to a somewhat lesser extent, uh, the military and Indian agents. 
So an example would be uh, Robert Dixon. He becomes this sort of really shadowy figure in the United States. Robert Dixon is a trader and merchant. He becomes infamous during the War of 1812, allegedly, you know, leading, you know, there was always talk about Indian depredations. That's the language used at the time. And, but he becomes this sort of figure uh, who's, uh, you know, talked about in the national press. Uh, but anyway, Dixon is at different times in different places, describes himself as being both a United States citizen and a British subject. One of the, my favorite examples of this is, I think it's Michel Mackinac. It's been a few years since I wrote, wrote the book, so I'm trying to remember all the detail, but I think this is coming back. So Michel Mackinac, he's in a duel with, I think it's the Indian agent, the US Indian agent. He is mm -hmm. the second in a duel, and the Indian agent is killed, and then Robert Dixon uh, petitions to be made the US Indian agent in Michel Mackinac. And the... Uh, Army officers who are at, uh, the U.S. Army officers who are at Michilimackinac at this time write a letter to, you know, Washington D.C. and be like, "This guy is don't don't do it, man. Don't do it. He's a traitor. He's a British subject. Do not make him an Indian agent." And you see this in numerous places, particularly in Detroit. Uh, I talk about that in some detail as the major population center. Detroit actually elects a British subject to be sent to the territorial legislature, so they, they're electing a foreigner to represent. Wayne County in, I think, Chillicothe, I think, is where the legislature is at that time. And obviously this guy says, oh, I'm an American citizen, but he's, he's signed a, a declaration saying he was a British subject earlier. And that's something actually that's probably worth bringing up. The one thing the treaty mentions is, I think it's within a year of the evacuation, people are meant to make their decision. Uh, it doesn't say how you do this. There's no mechanism in place. So today, you know, immigration, uh, and as someone who's gone through that process, was quite a while ago now, you know, this is highly bureaucratic process uh, with, you know, lots of legal hoops to jump through and so on. That's not the case in uh, Detroit in the 1790s. 1797, it's coming up to the anniversary of the transfer of the Western Posts, uh, and British subjects in Detroit circulate this, well, not a petition, a declaration, uh, stating that they intend to remain British subjects, and this gets sent around. And I think, so again, I'm going off memory, I think it's about a third of the population of Detroit decides to remain British and they're predominantly merchants involved in the fur trade or traders or other people who are attached to the fur trade. And this upsets obviously local administrators. They sort of accuse a small cabal of, of people of trying to ferment this opposition to you know the American rule in the city. Uh, James Wilkinson, who uh, I think Abby, you must have done a, uh, a podcast with James Lewis on the fur conspiracy because he was a finalist right for uh, not yet, but James Lewis is on my wish list, and in, in, in part, you know, because of Aaron Burr. But James Wilkinson is such an amazing character that he is probably he is, worthy of a podcast in his own right. He is a piece of work, as they say. Um, so this is for those of you that are unfamiliar. Uh, so James uh, Wilkinson is commanding the U.S. Army in the, uh, in the West at this point. Um, had been commanded by Anthony Wayne, but he passes away um, and is replaced by James Wilkinson, who is basically a Spanish agent. He's in the pay of Spanish authorities, uh, and he's involved in some way in the Burr conspiracy. It's all a little uh, uh, shadowy. You know, James Wilkinson is this is a, is in the pay of the Spanish government, um, but he's you know horrified by what's going on with these British merchants. He's such a hypocrite, as you know most people are. Is very concerned about the you know these machinations that are going on in the West. Um, 
with these disloyal uh, British subjects. Then some of these guys end up taking jobs in the federal government, territorial government in the West. So it's, it's just very ambiguous. And, it, and the point here is not that these people are nefarious or disloyal, but I think the point really is that these uh, national labels just don't mean anything to them. You know, we tend to think of the American Revolution incorrectly. I mean, I guess we don't all think of it this way, but we think of it as like a moment of national consciousness, right? That one day uh, British colonists woke up and they're like, you know what, I'm an American. This is this is rubbish. We're leaving the empire now. Um, but that's not really what happened at all. I mean, the creation of like a clear sense of, of American uh, national identity is a, a long project. And the same is true even of being British, right? Because these uh, so-called British merchants, they're from the, the periphery, right? Scotland has only been part of the Union for 70 years by the time of independence. So these labels, and you know, they're married into French-speaking Francophone families. They have married into, you know, indigenous families. These labels just don't mean anything to them. What's more important is kinship and place, and I guess the trade itself to some extent. So it's not that these are bad people. Um, you know, today we would think of them as, I don't know, traitors, but I don't, I don't think that that's a very helpful, although I was just dissing uh, James Wilkinson, but I think being a secret agent who's in the pay of a different government, of a foreign government, is a bit of a different story than, you know, being a merchant living in Detroit who's trying to figure out what to do for his family. Uh, James Wilson was just in it for himself. You've already mentioned a couple of times the significance of Native peoples in this space. Can you tell us how they relate to both the British and the Americans and what their own objectives are in negotiating this new reality? Yeah, well, they remain the power brokers in the West. Um, you know, everything west of the Appalachians is, is native homelands and, you know, numerous nations and bands and so on. When the, the news of the treaty arrives, Frederick Haldimand is the governor of Quebec. He's a British officer. And he's sort of horrified by this treaty. He's like, what have we done here? We've given this stuff away. It's ridiculous. So initially, the British officers try not to, they're not entirely sure what to do in terms of confessing their sins. But eventually they do. But they try to emphasize, again, there's going to be continuity. So all we've done is, you know, cede the sort of overall sovereignty. We haven't ceded any uh, you know, land in the terms of, you know, fee simple property ownership. There's no private seeding of land here. Um, but the United States takes a different view, and they take a view that, of, uh, that uh, you know, indigenous people who have largely allied with British, not, not entirely. Um, the United States did have some native allies, particularly among the Seneca of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. But anyway, the United States takes this view of a right of conquest, that they defeated Great Britain, therefore they defeated Great Britain's uh, native allies. The Confederation Congress sends out a bunch of uh, American diplomats in the 1780s to try to make peace. Um, but the point of the peace is to extract large land sessions, which the US does through uh, about three or four treaties, which are often described to as the, as the dictated treaties. Um, and I talk about those a little bit in the book. And there's an the example, particularly dealing with uh, the Mohawk people, um, that what happens is that these are coerced. Um, in the particular case, it's uh, Captain Aaron Hill is the name of the Mohawk leader, is basically kidnapped and held, you know, against his will until he agrees to sign this treaty. So these things are, you know, coerced, forcing indigenous people to cede land, often not their own land for that matter. Um, so what this does is helps to create uh, or galvanize resistance among indigenous people to the United States. 
Um, but some of the leading figures who are involved in the indigenous politics are also involved in the fur trade. And I found uh, one of the things I enjoyed writing most was probably the beginning of the first chapter where I talk about the trade and what it looks like. And because I found these, like, you know, some highly detailed accounts and things like that, which I can't talk about in depth because it, it, it's just too much in terms of the detail. But seeing people, you know, the individual accounts of people, um, I'm trying to remember Captain Johnny, I think, is one. Um, who's a Shawnee leader, uh, you know, he has an account with some of the merchants out of Detroit, and it's kind of fascinating. Um, so in some ways, it's, it's you know, they clearly indigenous people have their own agenda, which is to defend their homelands from being stolen by the United States. Um, but they are also tied into, you know, the trade itself, and they want the trade to continue. It's something that does benefit them. And that's not to suggest that the trade is, you know, completely mutual and idyll. But it's certainly a lot better than having your homelands uh, taken um, and by settler colonists, which is the alternative. Uh, but anyway, these treaties going back to the politics help to galvanize resistance among uh, indigenous people. You see the formation of the Northwest Confederacy or the Western Confederacies. This is a pan-Indian movement. So initially, it has a number of different leaders and the power shifts over time. But probably the most important figure in the early period of the 1780s uh, is Joseph Brandt who's a Mohawk leader, um, but then you also see people like Blue Jacket, who's a Shawnee, many other figures too that play a lead role. So in essence, what happens is the war really doesn't end in the, in the West, and eventually uh, the United States suffers two very significant defeats. Uh, Harmar's defeat in 1790, Josiah Harmar loses a battle against uh, the Confederacy, uh, and then uh, Sinclair's defeat. So Arthur Sinclair is the governor of the Northwest Territory, also leading um, federal troops and militia. Uh, and he's defeated at the Battle of the Wabash. The United States lost about 1,000, uh, killed and wounded. Uh, Little Bighorn, uh, I'm going to go off the top of my head. I think it's around 600, maybe a little bit less than that. But this is a significant defeat. And this is the first time to bring G-Dub in. We've got to bring in old G-Dub. Uh, this is the first time that so the legislature investigates the executive branch over Sinclair's defeat, um, because they're like shocked that this has happened, right? That there must be some mishandling here. So that's significant to broader US political history. Uh, but it seems for a moment that, you know, maybe the future of the United States in the West is is in the balance here. And then you have the last roll of the dice with Anthony Wayne's Legion, and eventually he does win at the Battle of Fallen Timbers. Uh, and that helps to lead to the Treaty of Greenville the following year and the session of most of Southeast Ohio as it is today. Well, one of the fascinating things I actually found in your book, and I, I didn't, I confess I didn't know this, is that there was for the moment in the post-1794, you know, Battle of Fallen Timbers, Treaty of Greenville period into the uh, late 1790s, early 19th century, there was some talk in British circles of trying to resurrect the idea of, a, uh, of an Indian state akin to what the British had imagined in 1763 by creating the proclamation line that would have barred uh, American settlers from moving west and essentially reserving most of the territory west of the Appalachian Mountains as an Indian reserve, uh, in part to stem the tide of violence uh, between white and Indian settlers, but also to more effectively manage the empire. But there's a moment in this period in your study where that idea comes back into fashion. And there's some talk about actually trying to do that again uh, as a means to create a buffer zone between British Canada and the United States. Yeah, that is one of the sort of British projects in the 1790s, which has some support with by Indigenous people, um, because Canada remains, or the government of Canada, remains concerned about its southern border. It's aware of the population 
disparity between the United States and uh, Canada. And that's kind of one of the curiosities of that relationship is on the one hand, we know the British Empire is far more powerful than the United States. Uh, but regionally, the United States is more powerful than Canada, right, in terms of relative population. So they're always concerned about invasion. And obviously, this did happen during the early stages of the Revolutionary War. Um, the United States launches an invasion that gets all the way to Montreal. So anyway, the British had this idea that they could try to negotiate this upper state, which they would see, in essence, as a client state, right? This would be under the auspices of the British Empire, but it would protect the independence of Indigenous peoples. This is one of the suggestions in the 1790s. The British government in Canada tries to send agents down to talk to this. Uh, Lord Dorchester is the Governor General of British North America for most of the 1790s, and he sends his personal uh, dude down to talk to Alexander Hamilton about this. And basically, the United States isn't interested. Um, they don't want the intercession of the British government on behalf of indigenous people, um, because this would undermine their claims to sovereignty, right? The, one of the themes that comes out of this book towards the end in particular is that the United States will claim the sole sovereign right to negotiate with, in, with people within its boundaries. One of the biggest problems actually after Sinclair's defeat is that uh, politics within the Indian Confederacy, there are different sort of hardliners and more accommodationists, I guess. Joseph Brandt ends up being more of an accommodationist. And they're arguing over where the boundaries should be drawn between, you know, a potential Indian state and the United States. The hardliners want the Ohio River, which had been um, the boundary established by the earlier colonial treaty of Fort Stanwix. So this is in 1768. So they want the Ohio River. Uh, Joseph Grant suggests the Muskingum River, which is a little bit further west. And this helps to fracture sort of political unity. And um, so the Confederacy is, is sort of weakening by the time of the Battle of Fallen Timbers. And Joseph Grant is not present at the battle. It's a possible uh, contingent moment. Uh, and it comes up again during the negotiations in the war of, you know, war, end of the War of 1812. Um, and in some ways, perhaps... Perhaps it was a more realistic prospect then. It's hard to say, hard to say, but certainly the plan doesn't go away. Well, we'll put aside the War of 1812 for the moment because we don't want to give away the keys to the kingdom. Well, I thought we might conclude today's program by asking what attracted you to the project? Because as people probably have suspected by now, you are an English country gentleman, but you're also now a citizen of the United States. And so perhaps you yourself are a citizen of convenience uh, and... Uh, but more importantly, what drew you to the project and, and, and why this topic? So, you know, as is, is pretty common for a first book, this was my dissertation and uh, based on my dissertation. And uh, I came up with the idea when I was a graduate assistant working on the papers of George Washington at UVA. Uh, and I had an interest in the American West after the revolution and the continued presence of the British Empire. Um, there. And I was interested in the fur trade too. I was like, well, we should look at the fur trade. And they had um, edited volumes of the papers of John Askin, who's one of the characters who comes up in the book. He's a Detroit trader, uh, merchant, and they had volumes of his papers uh, edited during the, and this is something that, you know, a lot of historians, uh, documentary editors play such an important role um, for providing access to uh, historical documents and things like that. And this was from the 1920s. But anyway, um, John Askin. So, I, you know, I was writing a seminar paper and I found the John Askin papers and I went in there. And John Askin was one of these citizens in convenience himself. Um, 
He was born in Northern Ireland. He comes to New York uh, during the Seven Years' War, is a sutler basically with the British Army, making money off that. Ends up working in uh, briefly in Albany uh, and then moves west to Michilimackinac in Detroit. He's perhaps one of the first British traders to venture into the West. Um, but he's someone who settles in Detroit eventually. He marries a French-Canadian woman. He also earlier on had what a marriage in what they call the fashion of the country, a la fashion du pays. So, you know, he embraced many of the things that were going on in the fur trade. But the most important thing was he stayed in Detroit for about at least six years after the evacuation uh, by the British troops. Uh, and he was a citizen of convenience. He, he was one of the sort of uh, local grandees. Uh, he had been a uh, justice of the peace in the British courts. He had been a, he was a lieutenant colonel in the Wayne County Militia at one point, actually the uh, Essex County Militia. So over the border in, in Windsor, I'm mixing them up, present day Windsor. So anyway, he sort of encapsulated this um, and they had more of his papers at uh, the Detroit Public Library and Askin has just a massive trove of information. Um, all of his financial records, his correspondence, there's thousands and thousands of pages. So it's such a, a, a rich source of information on the early American West. And, you know, it, it's sort of underappreciated, I think, because it isn't the Detroit Public Library, which is not a place that a lot of people, it's not one of the major centers of early American history. Um, but anyway, I went up there uh, and found that petition that I've been talking about that was signed by these British subjects. And when I found that, I was like, ha, this is intriguing. But I guess the thing you would say about uh, historians is they do tend to write about themselves to some degree. Um, you know, I don't know if that's just pure narcissism or what, but, you know, most people recognize that, uh, you know, we see things through the lens of our own experiences and so on. So in that sense, I was probably more primed to see uh, these citizens of convenience. Uh, but it doesn't mean I've got any particular, you know, insight into their world. They lived in the 18th century, they owned slaves, uh, they believed awful things, uh, they believed uh, really cool things uh, as well. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't claim that I have like some sort of genetic disposition to understand them, but I think I know what it is to move between sovereignties and, and navigate that. Well, it's a fascinating book. I really enjoyed reading it. And, uh, and actually, I think, you know, we were talking a little bit ago off camera, well, actually on camera too, about uh, teaching and uh, books to use in class. Uh, you know, if I'm ever back in the classroom, I'd love to use your book and and hopefully have you come zoom in and, and talk to the kids then. Cheers. Yeah, uh, Buddy Paulette, uh, who's a fellow uh, I met during, I was a fellow at uh, Washington Library about two years ago, I think. And Buddy Paulette was there from Southern Illinois and uh, he assigned my book, which was really kind of him. And I talked to his students just a few weeks ago and it, it's a great experience. I mean, if there's one positive thing that's come out of uh, this new addiction to Zoom, it is the fact that uh, that kind of collaboration is possible in a way that, I mean, maybe it was always possible, but it just didn't really occur to anyone. So I think the ability of authors to talk to students is much more likely and I think most authors are open to that it, it's nice to have someone pay attention to your work because you write these things and you kind of imagine that no one's ever going to look at them if you get any more uh, requests I'll act as your booking agent <laughs> thanks yeah I'm sure you'll, the phone will be ringing off the hook uh, exactly. not that we have phones that ring on hooks anymore but uh, exactly or notifications popping up yeah on FaceTime true. or something like that all right, Sir Larry, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, take care of you and you and your family stay safe. And uh, we hope you to talk too. to you soon. Yeah, it's good to see you, Jim.
you too. Hopefully, uh, I'll be back in Virginia one day. I do, you know, I, I kind of miss Virginia. Washington State is a good place. We often we talk about retiring back to Virginia. We'll, we'll see. We'll come on back anytime. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Busky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.